Hi, Jeremy. Hey, Raphael. What's going on? Oh, not much. I mean, I'm on vacation, so to speak. <laughs> we're, we're sneaking in this extra episode, seemingly because we're workaholics. Uh, we said that the last episode was the last one of the year. But here we are again. <laughs> uh, we're go- yeah. going for a record. I believe we're well, already the most the... prolific. Sorry. No, I said you can't be at the beach all day. It's uh, it's too hot midday, so I thought I can do a little uh, podcast. Ah. So what time is it there in Brazil right now? It's 4 p.m. It's like siesta time, basically. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And we're experiencing a little bit of delay. So if it sounds like Raphael's thinking for a really long time or I'm thinking after he speaks, it's because there's a bit of delay uh, over the network in our conversation. Yeah, it's good. Well, it's a calm uh, setting. Yeah, maybe we just we sound more reflective today. And uh, today we're going to talk about files and objects. Yeah, well, I think I, you know, I was sort of interested in uh, talking a little bit about fabrication, almost uh, and and files. Did basically did what is it to make things in a digital era? Certainly, as an artist. Um, and the thought occurred to me because I was I was working on a three D print yesterday, and I and yeah I, I saw to myself, something on on your on your Instagram. What was that? Yeah, I posted just I was looking I was printing something out of white plastic, and it was like there was a circle, and it, it was actually an iPhone case, <laughs> which is like such a cliche thing to be printing, but. Um, it reminded me of Westworld because everything's printed out of this like white goo in this HBO television show called Westworld that I'm sure people have mm-hmm. heard about. Um, well, they print they, human, human st- beings. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it reminded me how far we are from that hype and, and how 3D printers sort of um, whatever happened to them, right? Like they were supposed to be this almost like the Industrial Revolution, but they sort of have ended up a little bit like 3D TVs, like this technology that a few people use. And I actually do use them, um, but not as frequently as I thought I would. Um, but maybe maybe so more things of... are 3D, 3D printed than you actually know. Like maybe a lot of things in the grocery store, or maybe on a big industrial scale, they're being used and you don't even know. Uh, well, it doesn't really make sense. I do know that they're being used in studios like mine and architecture studios, design studios to do quick prototypes in-house and then like real mm-hmm. prototypes or the real final fabrication still happens, you know, at a, at a facility. Like usually what I'll do is I'll prototype something at home on my 3D printer, which is quite small and, and cheap. It was actually amazingly cheap when I bought it. It was like $150 on Kickstarter. And um, it's it's actually called the model or the, the, the model T or mod T because it's supposed to be like, now 3D printing is available to everyone. But usually what I'll do is I'll produce something at home just to get a rough idea for scale and whether it'll print okay. And then I send it off to be printed professionally, <clears throat> usually at Shapeways, which is like a New York-based uh, company that specializes in fabrication, uh, 3D printing, but other forms of fabrication. Um, and you just have to send them a, your 3D print file <clears throat> from home and you get like a beautiful thing back. You can get... Like anything from, you could print in gold if you want with them to like porcelain, um, which I've done a few times. And of course, plastic and stuff, but all kinds of metals. And and up to what stuff. size can they do? It depends on the material, like the porcelain size, you can't get any bigger than say like um, maybe a, a volleyball in size or a little bit mm-hmm. below that. Um but with some of the materials, I would say in general, that's that's kind of the scale that they they top out at, like volleyball or basketball yeah. sized. You can sometimes there's an go artist, a little bit taller. Uh, there's an artist called Ron Nagel. Is that his name? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And he only makes sculptures up to maybe six or seven inches hmm. uh, length with height. And he did that his whole career. And it, it, I think... It's one of the interesting things for me about files and objects is that contemporary art, um, if you want to make something look like art, you just make it really huge. So it's an easy yeah, way yeah, to, to assess the authority. So let's say you're a photographer, but then you start printing the photos the size of the entire wall, then all of a sudden it's art. Otherwise, it's a photo, it's a memory on the wall or, like a, or on, on the dresser. But if you mm-hmm. make it huge, then... 
But then it's interesting as a position to say, well, I'm an, I'm an artist and I'm not going to use that trick to assess yeah. uh, my territory and, and my authority. And I'm just going to make small sculptures or small photos or small paintings or whatever. But it, it's, almost, it's almost that things are not readable as art anymore unless they're huge. Yeah, and it's funny too because that's in contradiction with potentially the people that can afford to buy <laughs> the work, right? Like, or maybe it's in in harmony with that. But like, obviously, the larger the work, the idea is the more expensive it is too. Even though yeah. for me to print, like, a, the photo print section, interesting example to print, um, you know, a forty inch photo is roughly the same cost as a twelve inch photo now, um, like a C print, and so mm-hmm. there's very different. The very little difference, actually, the printing costs. In 3D printing, that's the not time, the case. It's just the time they need to set up. That's basically what you're paying for. Kind of, but the machine prints at this huge size already, right? Like when you yeah, print a C yeah. print. It, 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 might, it might even be more work for them to cut the small print. No, in fact, my printer for, you know, for C prints, they refuse to cut the stuff anymore. So they would prefer if you gave them like you know, a six foot file than a 12 inch file. I mean, they make yeah. you cut it, um, which is kind of funny. One of, the, one of the interesting things to me, there's, there's tons of ways of turning a digital file into atoms, into matter of any kind. So whatever that is, it could be an instruction and you like Carl Andre, where you say, okay, lay the bricks in a certain way. Mm-hmm. Or it could go as far as specifying a, a 3D printing material and specifying an architecture you can do anything but what interests me is that then we consume the objects mostly digitally again so we take pictures of them a lot of people don't (laughs) visit the exhibition and so it's this very inefficient uh, clumsy distribution of ideas where uh, you make something on the computer it's manufactured in another part of the world it's shipped to another part of the world it's photographed by someone and that's photoshopped and it's heavily edited and uh, maximized for its appeal and then that's consumed back home and and i've noticed that me and a lot of other, it that's a shift where a lot of artists used to spend a lot of time with the work so you would be in the studio playing with the material but now it's more the idea that it's conceptual but it has a material form and so you don't even have right. to spend so much time with the work maybe a week, maybe half an hour. Um, so yeah, and that, make, yeah, that makes no, and the I objects very, vir- what I'm getting at is that the, the objects are even more virtual than digital art. Yeah, and I've seen some good projects or artists take advantage of that, right? That sort of the fact that their work's gonna be photographed or like Rachel DeJude is an artist I liked. One time she had a show where it was just like plinths that were like almost like Western uh, you know, like Hollywood Western kind of movie. They're like plinths that were two dimensional, and on top of them were two dimensional sculptures. But in a photo, it looked like you were, you know, taking a picture of a room full of, of sculptures. But in fact, it was just like a, you know, just this veneer of of sculpture. And of course, there are artists like you that are making work that's impossible to photograph properly, like when you're doing a lenticular or something like that. Or yeah. I remember, was it a? Oh yeah, it was. Um, it was Parker Ito who did like those 3M paintings where it was reflective material that would, you know, if you, there was a flash, you couldn't take a photo of it basically, uh, which was kind of funny. Um, no, so people well, are kind of the, playing yeah, with it formally. Uh, those works actually light up in the photo, so they only exist in the photo. Okay, yeah, that's one way to, yeah, that's one way to look at it. Yeah, yeah, that's, sorry, yeah. they're better as photos than they are as in, in person because they're quite, yeah, otherwise yeah. in person they're just all these well, gray the, canvases. It, they're activated by the camera. Yeah. Right, right. And then there's yeah. recently been this trend towards people sort of creating activated sort of augmented reality uh, paintings and books and things like that, where there's like a digital layer that inserts itself, uh, you know, within the, the, the analog space, which is kind of interesting. I'm not sure yet if it's just a gimmick or not. Obviously, I like I play with augmented reality satirically, but um, I wonder if we're ever going to get to a place where like a virtual object has the same value. We've talked about that a little bit in the past, but there's, I feel like still this like romanticism towards the artist making something with their hands and well, fabrication I, I, I though think, is like, 
I, I disagree there. I don't think it's the, the romanticism of the hand. I think it's the romanticism of having realized it. So ev everybody can mm. play in Google SketchUp, or it's not Google anymore, uh, but the, there's easy 3D <laughs> software, so everyone can make a huge sculpture in virtual space. But then once you get to really make it, then everybody's like, ooh, that's badass. You made it. Yeah. But as yeah. as long as it's as long as it's a, a file, it does it's not very glamorous. And then once it reaches even for me with websites, I mean it, it people love the website, but once the website is shown in a space or even in on an urban screen and at the architectural scale, then it's like, ooh, then it's real. Even though right. you consume right. that image virtually. Yeah, I had a show recently and I, I put the monitor in the gallery on the floor or whatever, which you, you always joke is like <laughs> the less conventional, <laughs> the placement of the monitor, the more contemporary it is. Um, the more radical. Which I think is yeah. A yeah, radical. I mean, my favorite is when, I think it was Thompson Kraka, they they had the monitors like facing toward the floor, you know, mounted to the wall. So you had to like crawl underneath the monitor. Um, but yeah. It, I, I put it in the middle of the floor or whatever, and the gallery is like, it's that way too small. That was Eva Franco-Mettis, like, you mean? Oh, that's right. It was. was. Yeah. yeah. It was Ivan Franco, yeah. Um, but yeah. of course, like, yeah, also John Raffman made those those cabinets you had to get into or like whatever. But anyway, yeah. they put the, the monitor in the middle of the gallery, and it was just, the gallery was like, it's too small, but it's like, it's 50 inches. It's the biggest TV I've ever bought. But, you know, it, like, <laughs> the space demands a certain scale, like the, the architecture of the gallery uh, demands that the monitor be like, no, you need a hundred inch monitor or something like that for it to, <laughs> to hold it, to hold its own. But, and I don't, yeah, yeah I know. Well, that, it, it, I, that's I think also, I, I think that's also a question of, uh, there's just an inflation of scale. So as soon as everyone can yeah. afford the 50 inch, then there's another artist who can afford the 60 inch and then that's cooler. And then yeah, I can remember when just putting a 40 inch monitor up on the wall was like impressive, right? <laughs> yeah. And well, yeah, like... pro projection used to be very impressive. And now people are like, well, the colors are not so saturated. Um, yeah. And now a 100 inch TV is attainable. So then you need like 1500 inch TVs. <laughs> it, it does remind me of the like the person who made the best, made their career on the sort of scale uh a joke in, in art or maybe it's not a joke but a tactic is Klaus Oldenburg right so it's like you know a paperclip yeah. the size of a building uh, you know taking the the small thing and making it huge really does add value or perceived value and is a strategy in of itself I'm I'm not sure do you know much I'm just, about Klaus Oldenburg just, and whether was he no, in on no, the joke I'm just, remem I'm just remembering Spinal Tap but <laughs> do you know that part <laughs> with the scale Oh, have you no, seen wait. the movie? Yeah, I've seen it. Remind me. Well, they they have a a, a set design that is uh, Stonehenge with the stones, the monuments. So he draws the sch schematics on napkin, <laughs> yeah. but he accidentally uh, mixes up inches and centimeters. So then they get on the stage, and the Stonehenge stones are smaller than them, and it's <laughs> very very <laughs> unimpressive. Yeah, <laughs> that actually happens quite people, a lot. Yeah, for people who don't know, Spinal Tap is a mockumentary about a hard rock band with a sort of folk myth legend, and it it just makes fun of hard rock culture. And yeah, but it, it, that does happen quite a lot in three D printing. Actually, there's always this thing. It happens to me literally every time, and it's one of the reasons I have to print at home before I send it off for like to Shapeways, which yeah. can take like a a couple weeks to a month to return. Um, it's the funny scale thing on on the internet when you order stuff. I guess it's the same with Amazon or with Shapeways. It's the same. Yeah, and they all, I mean, you've seen it, I'm sure, on like digital, like maybe it's on Padalate, I can't remember, or Artsy, where they like have to put a silhouette of a human next to the artwork so yeah. you know how big it is, um, which <laughs> is kind of a funny, funny in relationship to what we're talking about, right? Because like, oh, I get it. It's it's big. <laughs> this, but on a screen, everything's the same size. I right? mean. It happened to be quite a few times on Amazon where I would buy a light bulb and then it gets to my house and it's three times too big. It's one of those huge light bulbs. And oh, even yeah. though there was a picture, it's hard to, yeah. And I wonder if that happens with the art collectors who th they're like, it's, it's a very quick purchase and it's kind of a frenzy mm -hmm. and it's a bidding. And, and all of a sudden they realize, oh, this won't fit 
in my apartment. It is a good question I because just, I read that um, I was reading a like a blog post a few months ago. I was researching uh, art collectors, and apparently, a large percentage, like something like thirty or forty percent, use Instagram as a primary means of like scoping yeah. out work. And so, I mean, maybe because yeah. they're seeing it in context of the artist's life, but I don't know. It's funny that now this uh, podcast seems to be more about scale than about manufacturing, which is fine. <laughs> I, I, true. I just visited a, a photo exhibition here, and I was just realizing how crazy it is that we are on Instagram so much and how tiny that is. I've, I've tried to find Instagram viewers that you can, but the photos are not even that high res, so if you blow them up, they what? don't look that good. It's true. I mean, My mom, the other day, I was showing her something on Instagram, and she tried to pinch to Zoom, and you can't even do that, right? Like, you can't even look at it. No, detail. you can't. It re- you can if you upload it. Yeah. Oh, really? But even How then, do you do it? I, it, it, well, you just use two fingers. Oh. <laughs> no, I don't think you can <laughs> in the timeline. Maybe you have to yeah, click a different... On, or, oh, okay. Yeah. Well, I don't have it. But, uh, I can't check. Um, my, my point is, like, we used to maybe consume images in a magazine, and that's at least... Mm-hmm. How many times bigger is a magazine of a, a, a full spread compared to an Instagram image? That must be like, is that ten times bigger? Well, so, yeah, just the physical area of it. Of course, the magazine yeah. resolution is limited by the printer that prints it. The screen resolution of that. Yeah, but like a it. nice big spread, that's already a lot better. And then, yeah, it, it's just a funny, funny coincidence of, of factors of like we wanted portable information it's very addictive uh, it, it changes mm-hmm. all the time so we're always curious and then but that's my point like you you could have a Richard Serra sculpture that uh, cost a, a bazillion to make and uh, even people died installing it and, mm-hmm. and then people just consume it on a on a three inch monitor right yeah, I mean, art books always struggled with this even before the internet, right? So artist books seemingly were always like in competition to be bigger than the last one. Yeah, um, you probably have a few, but the biggest books I own are all art books, right? Like, seeming there's this idea that the bigger it is, you know, the, I don't know, like the more authoritative it is or the more beautiful, but yeah. you need to have see you, the have detail. You been, have you been to the Tashin stores, the, the publisher? I haven't been to their stores now, but what are they like? No, they have they have these huge books that are really if you if you open the book, it's almost the size of a one person bed. It's really <laughs> it's like yeah. the, it's like Kramer's <laughs> coffee table book from Seinfeld. It's like the, no, the big, book bigger, is also serious, a coffee table. No, seriously, I th- <laughs> I think the height of the book is like one meter, and then the width is like seventy centimeters or so, and then and then double that if you open it. It's really yeah, you need a big. Coffee it does table. remind me. It does remind me that like uh, virtual reality, they keep talking about how, you know, architects and artists are going to be, you know, be able to get closer to what it's like to be in front of the real thing um, and and experience scale. And it's so funny that like, I don't know, like when I'm in virtual reality, I'm not sure if I think about scale um, that way. It's basically, I think it's just like putting the magazine very close up to my eyes or something. Well, yeah, I mean, we did a whole episode about it, and I, the, the idea that the image is, is only a centimeter away from your lens of your eye, that's strange yeah. to me. Yeah. But, I mean, it, it, so, it's so still, you in, know, in, in, actual, in relationship. In, 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 but physically, the image is really tiny because it's so close mm-hmm. to your eye. No. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, I, mean, I don't know. If we're at the at the end of the day, or the bottom, I, I don't know. I don't know what the what what the thesis is here. But if scale is impressive, um, at some point when everyone has access to scale, maybe it's not so impressive. Like I was just uh, watching. That's this. an interesting idea. Yeah, because it's like there's this move towards minimalism. I was just watching a de- documentary on on Netflix, and that's the incorrect use of the word minimalism. But we're just going to go with it because that's what they used. Um, but people down sort of like downscaling their lives because there's this idea in America of, you know, you have to have the biggest house and the two car garage and the three car garage. And there's, you know, that's there's 50 to 60 years of history, maybe more of getting bigger is better and that being associated with wealth. Yeah, yeah I, I read that the, the average home just uh, went up three times in size since the 60s or something. It's it's really that's definitely a trend yeah. of bigger, bigger, bigger. Yeah. 
And they say well, so in the a, documentary, uh, they say that people only use 40 percent of their 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 space. Right. So they don't even use yeah. all their space. They, they don't even use half of it. There was also this documentary on tiny houses, which is a similar sentiment. Mm-hmm. So people will build houses with a very small uh, surface area. And I looked at the documentary and I was like, that looks like an average apartment in New York. It's right. not that tiny. <laughs> right. Or in Japan, right? But in that yeah. world, maybe, this is like a speculative thought, maybe we, we get to a place where artwork or artists are more relevant for creating like things that fit into your tiny life. <laughs> so it's like we yeah. <laughs> like an artwork that fits in your tiny house. It, and for me, this is kind of the way I feel. Like every everything I add into my home, because I live in a small apartment, so do you. I have to really like kind of um, think about it and I have to like, you know, take something away if I'm going to put something new in because there's yeah. no more space. And, you know, so I don't and I'm not going to get storage. And so my life really is about like the the, the quality of the thing um, and and how but close you, you could also can you could also consider that it's not about the quality, but you can rotate. You can give things away and then put something new in place and it, you just constantly change. Right, that's what IKEA wants you to do, right? It's like you change your furniture at the seasons or something. My brother actually is an architect, <laughs> yeah. and he once said that like the trend is towards disposable architecture. So buildings, you know, a long time ago, we used to believe the buildings should last forever. There should be like you know their monuments almost for future generations. But the trend recently is an admission among architects that. Uh, buildings will probably be torn down within their own lifetime at an accelerating rate. And so the ecological thing to do is to build buildings so that they can be dismantled more easily and sort of replaced, which is an interesting way to think about space in general, right? It's like as this... Yeah, I I just read an article about uh, modular buildings where the the entire apartment is built beforehand and then they just lay them out like Lego bricks, each apartment, and they can go... 20 stories high or whatever you want. Yeah. So that actually my brother worked on the first building in New York uh, that was built that way. It was actually a disaster. <laughs> we'll go into the <laughs> reasons why. We, because it was the first time they made a lot of mistakes and there was weird, weird stuff that happened. But yeah, the idea Oops. is kind of, kind of interesting. And it does bring yeah. us back to 3D printing because you keep seeing, I always see these stories uh, or at least during the hype of 3D printing, like, you know, in China, they're 3D printing homes using concrete printers and stuff like this. And there's this sort of like um, fetishization about, you know, regarding the automation of uh, fabrication and construction of construction and deconstruction of the world in ways that are more fluid. And I guess maybe easier for us to replace and renew. Um, yeah. But I'm not sure those would be great places to live inside. Uh, one of the drawbacks of apparently the building in New York was that in one article I read, they're like, well, one of the inefficiencies was they had so many floor plans, but of course it'll make it possible to have this custom, everything to be customized. If it's automated, then you could customize it and personalize it. But actually that's not, you know, that's, and that's not, cause that's not friendly to previous forms of automation, which were assembly line based. And it reminded me, reminds me that I, I knew a guy that was kind of, he had this startup that he was trying to build where you could customize the hardware, like a consumer could buy, um, buy something that they made themselves really com- confusing in a way but like okay you mean say like you a, wanted a radio self assembly computer basically it was like a, a website you could go to and you could build your own electronics and have them sent to you and like customize them yeah. and so you could have mm-hmm. like you could show it could be like his idea was that consumer electronics are kind of like in this moment like in Shenzhen where teenagers I'm sure you've heard make cell phones or whatever that could be available to everyone because there's like a surplus of components and they plug and play together. So you could build like a, a radio uh, clock radio with an Instagram photo stream that also plays music at, you know, on the hour cuckoo clock. I don't know, some kind of mashup of something that anything was possible. Then, then when they set out to do it, actually, they ended up, you know, hitting all kinds of walls, of course. And they ended up, it, you could just customize the look and feel of, uh, this like Bluetooth speaker <laughs> that was the final product. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the idea is kind of interesting though, and it might be something there's, I always find there's these waves in consumer culture um, from everyone wants the same thing to radical or like extreme customization. Cause I got my start early on in the nineties doing skin designs. Do you know, remember skins? 
they were for, like for um, MP3 players or for what? Yeah, like I, yeah, like as a teenager, I had a. You can still check out my website. Uh, maybe I'll just do a search for Jeremy Bailey skin design or something like that. But uh, yeah, I would do skins for um, for like MP3 players, and specifically, I was doing them for this company called Panic, which is still around actually, for a player called Audion. But there was another one called Sound Jam, and there was of course Winamp. Um, Sound Jam became iTunes. Apple bought it, and it's weird. The skin that they designed that the iTunes has today was the one that Sound Jam had in the '90s. That um, <laughs> that another designer had, like that we were all riffing off of because we came up you with mean, brushed you mean metal. That, I remember. You mean that? Uh, you mean the initial iTunes on the Mac or the current one? The current one, like it's still kind of that brushed metal look. They kind of removed the brushed aluminum yeah, or brushed yeah, look. Yeah. But it's still that gray, and it still has that LCD panel. Well, we were all doing little. Yeah, yeah, I did yeah. a one just like that, um, and it was like there were these little trends. I remember there was like the, the there was me, and there was this other guy, Benk Sundin, who was like Swedish, who I was always competing with. This was my minor celebrity in the nineties. <laughs> How I paid my way through <laughs> school. I, I had work yeah. on billboards in Japan. I worked I for AOL the, the, for a little wi- while. The Winamp skins were crazy. Like my stoner friends yeah. would have a reggae skin and it, it was basically just a, an overlay of an image with hardly any functionality it was completely as if someone it was real, as if someone spray <laughs> yeah. airbrushed your stereo well the the community that i was a part of would think of that as low skin art <laughs> or skin design yeah. but the high <laughs> the high-end stuff was trying to simulate real materials because the computer interface had become this sort of standard block you know kind of standard ikea thing and we want you know we wanted it to be like wood and metal and like i would come up with sci-fi interfaces that were like liquid it's it's still alive and yeah it's still alive in like case mod design for pcs like people are still doing that but i feel like it's actually cyclical and we're kind of on the upswing back towards customization again and this idea it'd be interesting once once uh, once we get hardware that tries to look like software so if if people start building couches that try to look like mp3 players no but that's the whole thing we are that was what the three if to bring us back to our 3d printer thing is like that was what 3d printers were supposed to do they're supposed to allow you to customize or manufacture personal manufacturing you know is allow you to customize your life and build you know fix things build parts like in but no i mean the the tension is not that many people want to do that right what i've seen people 3d print quite often is like what they download from like you know on the internet from thingiverse or something like that and it's usually like a little like anime character or something or like a pot for their plant or something or an iphone holder well they, if people um, were already there's all these sci-fi novels of people being worried that uh copyright issues and that you can download the latest sneakers and then print them and right but, if you and look at if you look at all the all the years of inkjet printing of two-dimensional printing i don't think people copy books by printing them out they copy books by just taking the file so it, it feels like piracy and then printing it, it it's almost more expensive than just buying the thing so if, well, because if, it's if you want to if you yeah. want to pirate sneakers or something then it's cheaper to just buy the sneakers it's yeah it's ridiculous to print them i mean it takes a few hours to print something on a 3d printer and it takes um, it's like film in the 1960s or something you send it off to get processed and it comes back to you months later if you get a high quality thing but like you can do next day with certain service bureaus but it's very much like the early era of digital files where there were service bureaus and the funny Mm -hmm. thing is i was reflecting that my 3d printer was you know i was like ah this is so shitty because yesterday i was having trouble with it and it always takes me like an hour to get it going like to, i have to like repair it or update it or get it warm it up um but then i remind i, rem, I was rem, sort of reminded that my regular like two-dimensional printer in my home hasn't gotten better in fact it's sitting unoperational in in the back corner <laughs> yeah. everybody answer. hates yeah. the printer doesn't everybody's like I, I really want to get rid of it but there's this one time a year that i have to have a print because i'm going to uh, some visa office and i have to bring a print and otherwise <laughs> but it's like once a year but, you need it yeah and it's so but it's usually embarrassing because you print it, it's all like streaky and it's, it's yeah you faded. forgot to buy ink and the, the well, yellow because is they gone, require so constant yeah. yeah they require yeah. constant use apparently just to, you know and so the 
I don't know. I, I, I bought an expensive laser printer at work actually this year. And so just to put it in context, it's not necessarily about the cost. It's just the technology just has not improved. And this printer, which was expensive and big, and the team was like, we really need a printer so we can put things up on the wall. And then it like we it arrived and we printed our first prints and they were streaky. The paper was jamming <laughs> like and still to this day, it's been, I think, eight months. And we've had the, the printer c- people come in and try and fix it like four or five yeah, it times reminds physically. Me, it was like it reminds me of the movie Office Space where there's a scene where they take baseball bats and destroy the printer because it's always <laughs> jamming. Well, we don't even and have to get sort of started a, on how bad yeah, the interface of a printer is usually also impossibly Yeah, but it's use. funny. The, the movie Office Space is from, what, the like, uh, late 90s? Yeah. And then, uh, so printers haven't really gotten better since then. No, they haven't. I mean, because it's the, phys- the physical space, you know, require, it's not easy, right? And I think every time technology th- assumes it's easy, they, they mess it up, right? Like... There's, there's lots of examples outside of printing. I am reminded, though, that still the most popular tool, you know, there's been a proliferation of maker labs across the world, right? Where Maker labs are places yeah. where there's 3D printers and laser cutters and vinyl cutters and things like that. But every single, like, fab lab uh, person that I've talked to, people who run the places, because, you know, whenever I'm in, I'm like, so what's the most popular tool? And, like, everyone always says the same thing, the laser cutter. <laughs> it's like this, okay, this like so, 2D so let's, thing. Let's keep a yeah. So somehow that uh, have you seen cool projects from laser cutters? Cool. Pro- well, I think you don't know that the reason laser cutters are popular is because you don't know they're they're yeah. they're used all the time, right? Same yeah, thing with yeah, vinyl yeah, yeah. cutters, right? Yeah. So when you see like when you see it, it's become so ubiquitous. It it is successful. Same thing with CN- like CNC is really way better than three D printing. Right. Like yeah. a, a CNC machine can carve out of any material, including like solid metal. In fact, the computer that I'm using was in some ways CNC milled. And that's been accessible and available for for at least a couple decades in in, in a relatively um, affordable way. And so it's like, I mean, to if we're talking about in fabrication, it's not available to your mom and dad. But as an artist, you have access to these machines. Um and I'm not sure that I want a CNC in my own home. <laughs> like I don't want, or I don't want no, a water jet. That's that's you know? the thing. I, I think we were talking about the the home studio and everything being nimble and uh, agile. I really love that. I don't have any of those things in my home. I don't have a 3D printer. Mm-hmm. I, well, I do have an inkjet printer, and I use it once a year. But <laughs> all the other stuff I make is uh, I, I make textiles and that machine costs millions of dollars and then I make lenticulars yeah. and that machine costs millions of dollars but at some point maybe I want to stop doing that and switch to something else it doesn't mean I'm, I have one of those expensive machines and then I have to keep making that because I bought the machine or anything so I think the whole essence of a file is that it's an instruction and that it, it is realized somewhere else yeah, I mean, I think that that's the advantage to you as the artist. Like, don't have you don't have to invest in that um, that machine. You can let someone else sort but, of carry but that some, risk. But I, I know some artists who really swear by having even the big machine in their studio because accidents happen, and uh, yeah, historically, you can this is true. Way, yeah. You can manipulate the machine in a way that you're not supposed to, which uh, a factory will mm. not allow you to do because you might destroy the machine and. Uh, special things happen but in my case I really like this uh, flexibility and this I also this idea of distance is interesting to me that you feed something into a system that uh, even geographically is far away from you and in that way accidents happen because you weren't there and then you see it and it might be awful it might be wonderful but something Mm -hmm. happened that you had no control over it I mean it is funny though because it's almost like in that way you're simulating the data file or the internet in the physical world where you're in some ways just like it's a it's like a kind of a screen with a very slow refresh rate (laughs) yeah it's like you send the file and the refresh rate's a month yeah it was especially with textile that i realized that how slow it is because um i i spoke to a few different manufacturers and everybody was so slow on email because they're so into the material so they answer email mm-hmm. once a week or something and you, know, and you start panicking what's going on what is this i can't work this way and then you realize that's their pace and it's this 
they're working on a technology that's centuries old and it's a different pace than when you upload an image to a Tumblr. So, well, and that's what makes yeah, it interesting. I think there's an interesting topic um, just below the surface of what you're talking about, too. And uh, I'm reading a book right now about um, platform economies. And one of the things that they talk about is like I'm reading a chapter on Mechanical Turk right now. And I, I know quite a few artists that we know have also explored Mechanical Turk as like sort of distributing the artist fabrication process across the network. But there are all these implications in terms of like the human labor. So like, yes, there's the, in your case, there's like the craftsperson that cares deeply about the material, right? And and it's almost mm -hmm. like you are collaborating with that. But then there are these interfaces like Mechanical Turk that separate you from the human or abstract the human labor to the point where, you know, the product that they create, it might as well be just an automated printer. And in that, in doing so, we kind of like, I don't know, we alienate. It just happens the, to the be crap. that the human is a, is a little cheaper than the machine. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Mechanical Turk's the best example of that because there are real people behind the scenes, but the whole interface treats it as if they're a robot. And it makes light of, you know, historically the Mechanical Turk, which was this chess playing yeah. Turkish person or whatever. Um, they had a human being inside of it, this sort of fake robot. And it, and it, but it reminds me that a few years ago, I don't know if artists are still doing this, but I was always like really morally apprehensive about artists that were sending their work to China to be painted. Like, so you do a digital Photoshop version of your work and then you'd like, you'd send it to China because there were thousands of Chinese painters that had trained in the techniques of like classical painting and they could like render it in perfect detail. And, it, and usually the artist would say it was like something about the, di you know, this was some, this had something to do with the physicality of the digital era and like the, the fluidity. Well, of, there's, of there's, capital I, I think, and labor. I think, yeah, there's, there's also the general uh, problem, that, as you said, like once something is available to everybody, you got to take it to the next level. So, okay, yeah. we can make really big prints. Okay, I'm gonna have them painted, because that's yeah. the next level. Then, yeah. So, and then once that's possible, then you figure out. I, when you talk about inflation, I always thought that the next, next, next level work of art, it, like if you really, as a collector, if you really want to stand out, you'd be like, I have so much money, I don't care. You would just find the most expensive painter in the world and ask that painter to paint your house, just the walls, just paint them white. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know, you ask, yeah. you ask David Hockney to paint your mansion. and <laughs> <laughs> But he's going to do it on an yeah. iPad, right? <laughs> yeah, um, whatever yeah, he does, I, I, but it, 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 it should be absolutely invisible. You're like, oh, this is nice, this house. Yeah, it's all white. Okay, cool. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah this pigment was actually uh, hand selected and made from the feathers of. <laughs> no, not even dead just the doves. fact that you got Dave, David Hockney to, to grab the roller and paint your house. <laughs> right, right. But we've talked about solo yeah. it before, and the instruction, the instruction being maybe more valuable than than yeah. the actual physicality of the thing. And maybe that that's, you know, obviously that's what that artist would say. The artist that sends their work to China to be printed saying it's, well, it's conceptual art. It's not about the craft. It's not yeah, about it's the, not the, the painting. Well, the, the, they want to take out the, the manual gesture or their personal manual gesture. So they, they, yeah. they want this dead, deadpan delivery where it's like, I have not been painstakingly laboring. I, I let someone else do it. I just had the idea. Right. Yeah, and I think, was it Oliver Lyric had sort of the Scud Missile piece that was painted in China. It was kind of the first, one of the first ones I think became famous that way. Do you know the piece I'm talking was about? Was it painted? I didn't know it was painted. I just know it as a digital image. No, he, he, the physical versions are made in China. I think I didn't they're know either made in China or somewhere version. in the Middle East. It might be in the Middle East to like, you know, so that it's a full circle or whatever. But I sometimes um, think that conceptual art is basically bullying. Because <laughs> it well, it definitely tells conceptual you art is always, yeah, yeah. But conceptual art is always most radical when it's, it has this sort of badass thing of like, I'm not gonna touch the material. I'll just <laughs> let these min minions do it. I'm not gonna come up with an idea. I'm just gonna find it. <laughs> yeah. And so, but yeah. that's the way. That's what I'm getting at. I think that there's about there's a little bit of there's politics and power in the act of making something. And when we we talked about scale at the beginning, I think that that's also embedded in this conversation right like the scale has to be so impressive that it's intimidating and, and you mentioned Richard Serra he wanted to physically intimidate 
his audience, right? Like he wanted them to feel the mass. Um, and in a way that they want, you know, make them feel a little bit like um, like they're giving up some 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 control or some safety. I mean, that, obviously, he killed someone with one of his works, so it's like it happened. You know, taken I, I read to the it happened three t- three times that someone died during the installation of his work. Three, three times. times. Oh, yeah. I knew that a, a member of the public died in New York. That wasn't an installer. Okay. It was like just someone walking out below the sculpture. And it was like precarious. It was one of his early works, and it fell over. <laughs> it's like a, it's but, like a really high culture Laurel and Hardy moment. But it, it's funny because I don't think that the person that's sending stuff out over Mechanical Turk is thinking about it the same. I think Richard Serra is probably more responsible because he can actually see how he's killing someone. But someone who's earning a dollar, you know, twenty cents an hour on Mechanical Turk, uh, you can't see the the poverty or the the expropriation that's occurring. Like you can't see their suffering. Because yep. the the interface kind of obscures it a little bit, but anyway, I, it, the, I don't. This has been a it's a it's a complicated topic that we somehow. Well, but, but <laughs> it, sort of. one of the interesting things to me, um, another moral problem is that, are you still there? Yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, I'm here. Um, another moral problem that I felt when I started making objects is that, if you make digital art and it's available for free. And then you start making objects, then it, it's not available for free. And that's a very simple problem. So mm-hmm. I, I enjoy making the objects, but the distribution is a lot that less radical. Um, mm-hmm. and, and what's interesting to me, at the beginning of digital art, computer monitors were so slow and so small that they were never considered as an output of digital art. So. Even if you made moving images, they were converted to film, but mostly people made still images. It was even too hard to make moving images. So a lot of digital art in the beginning was etched or silk screened. Or there was always an, a physical output. It was very natural mm-hmm. because monitors were just not an option. Um, and later on, monitors became so great and you could show actual algorithms working and uh, living algorithms and not in a still form that then going back to stills kind of felt like a sellout because people would assume you would move to the still because of money, not because it's an interesting form. And so Mm -hmm. I I think in digital art, there was always going from the screen to an interactive installation. Nobody questions that. That was always fine. There was no guilt. Mm -hmm. But going from uh, interactive art or computational generative art to any kind of either sculpture or still in the beginning there was a lot of suspicion and discussion in net art like oh this can never become an object those are false mm-hmm. those are and so that's an interesting question to me like um, there's examples of artists where i like the physical work more and there's examples of artists where the physical work is way less interesting than the work where you can see a, a computation in action yeah, or like I've talked about, you know, the wor- where the work happens in real time in terms of performance. Or yeah. It's not about, you know, you don't want to create more stuff for the world. But I, I am always struck by like certain work, just the physicality of it. And certainly when you can touch something, touch is like a sense that digital doesn't really, has yeah. never really afforded for it, still doesn't, right? Do you know, and, do you know it, about the, the, the tactism art movement? Well, it I know that a, during Fluxus, Fluxus artists were were, were making no, no, works this that is you could further, like further oh, okay. back. Yeah, they this were making was stuff where would like it was like yeah, sorry, surfaces and smells and stuff like that. But what's yeah, this? but tell, but, tell but more. well, Marinetti, the the guy from Futurism, after Futurism, he wanted to start another art movement, and he wrote the Tactiest Manifesto, and it was mm-hmm. a manifesto about using touch as the main sense for this form of art so he would make touch poems where you would put your hands in a in a box where you couldn't see or hear and there would be sandpaper and feathers and oil and all kinds of things you touch and Mm. and you would follow these structures and it never caught on maybe with fluxes they they built upon that but um it's interesting because in general people like to look at art with their arms crossed yeah i mean well it's very like yeah, I mean, it's, it certainly like it discriminates against those that have poor vision for sure. But I, I think probably the you know the tactile thing 
the re it's very hard to show someone else or to share coming back to your Instagram thing. Right. And this is something that's true that Fluxus knew, right. That like, and that probably he knew as well is that if the experience happens in the head and you can't share it with someone, the value in some ways, um, at least in terms of commodification or capitalist value diminishes, right. You have to be able to distribute it for it, you know, and repeat it and share it for it to have value or to be resellable in some way. Of course, like we know that we're... Well, there's also the tactiest, um, the touch sensation that you have even without touching it, but just seeing the, the light reflect. So uh, a lot of people were discussing why painting still has this enormous appeal. And, and mm. uh, I think it was Peter Halley who was saying it's, it's the structure, it's the texture of the paint that no other medium has that is just so pleasing to the eye and I think Matisse said something about I want to make work that is feels like a velvet couch and you just want to sit in it so right. there's some there's something there that you don't have in most manufactured things no no it's you're absolutely right I mean, there and I think it's what you said earlier that really resonated with me which is like when you send something off and it's and they make an, a mistake Right. It's often like the mistakes in the process that are the things you appreciate. Um, it's the error, mm -hmm. because if you can have the exactly the same thing as someone else, it suddenly has less value because it's less unique. And art is built really on this kind of economic model of the unique object, the unique thing, the one of a kind, the thing you can't buy. There's, but, yeah, the there, but there's a there's a tricky thing where that's the economic reality. OK, everybody mm -hmm. wants a velvet couch for their eyes. But is that also that might be a bad direction where deep in your heart you think, well, I don't really think that's what it's about. Well, it's I mean, it does remind me that couch. like, is there, is there scarcity? Is scarcity an emotion something that we value? So if I feel if I felt more sad than you, you know, like, does that have, <laughs> the, you know, does that have value or should do I want everyone to feel as sad as me? Um, and if everyone felt sad, then we've talked about this a few times today, which is kind of interesting that we're on this tone. But if everyone feels sad, then is being sad interesting anymore? No, it's like it's, I had it's like hearing a band for the first time. It's only it only sounds good as long as you're the only one that's ever, that discovered it. And then and then you've heard it a few times and everyone else is talking about it. And it suddenly it doesn't yeah, life sound is complex. Huh? Life well, is then really you hear complex. it at Walmart and you're well, you hear it at Walmart and you're like, this band's just terrible. <laughs> but it goes like, in waves because it, it, like, it, at some point you're like, oh, I'm the only one who knows. And I remember this happened with yeah. Nirvana and like, I was really into it as a teenager, but then everybody was into it and I would find more obscure stuff. And then you revisit it and you're like, oh, this is actually great. And, uh, um. So what but, we have to figure out, Raphael, is how to make immateriality, you know, exclusive. <laughs> You know, and maybe um, I don't know. Maybe it's well. A t I it's a I I think the foundation. No, no. But the, the the real foundation, I think, for exclusivity, is uh, your contacts. Mm -hmm. So you can do anything. It doesn't matter what. It just depends on who your friends are. So oh, your it, contacts. You can, you, I thought you said context. Yeah. Well, it's the same thing. The people basically. you know. So. <laughs> yeah, so if, if, if people allow you into that club and you get to show in, in the most exclusive room, it doesn't mm. really matter what you show there. Right. So it's, it's, yeah, you're absolutely right. The plinth or the box that it's sitting on, and that includes yeah. the people that see it, is what makes it important. So it could have been 3D printed. But that's printed. a corrupt system because you, you, you yeah. that's a corrupt system because you might uh, adjust your work because you want to be in that space so bad. So. I mean, I guess the cliche is you would like sleep your way to the top or something like that. I don't think anyone really. That's the truth. That's the. If we're gonna take it right <laughs> back to the original physicality and touch, like, yeah, it's the sleazy yeah. underbelly. It's but the it's the velvet uh, yeah. backroom couch. Matisse's. It's back funny room that couch. we're we're both people who who really avoid collecting, so we're not even really the the people to talk to about the desirable no. object. Yeah, I don't know. What, we always end up on that, but I think it's because we d we're discussing the value of art in general um, in society, not just like value in monetary sense, but in terms of attention and distribution and how technology intersects with that. And, you know, the idea was that the Internet was supposed to make, you know, creativity and 
thinking, you know, the most interesting thoughts and most interesting material, the most marginalized voices available to everyone. And then the problem that I think we feel uh, is that once there's this plentifulness, once everything's available, suddenly uh, people value it less, which is the opposite of their original hypothesis. Yeah, right? like, it, it's, it's very similar to, uh, and we'll do another podcast about tools and computers, but the moment a new computer arrives, it's already old. So it's like, oh, mm. it can only do this and this when, <laughs> oh, or, yeah, oh, I, I thought yeah. it would be even, uh, yeah, yeah. But now it actually happens before you get it. You're already disappointed before. <laughs> in, in my <laughs> With case, the rumor but. websites. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like I, no, I've been recently it, it, commenting in general. I'm disappointed before uh, with the present, but I'm also disappointed with what's going to happen next year. It's like it's, you're disappointed in the future. Yeah, already, I'm already yeah. disappointed in the future. It's taking. Oh God, long. oh God, I'm going to be disappointed <laughs> next year. Oh, I see it. <laughs> But but I will say from firsthand experience that uh, um, the making the objects is, has been very very interesting. I, I, and yeah, because you moved from you moved from making all digital to making about fifty fifty digital and material things, yeah, right? Yeah, yeah. And and um, the the I had this whole construct in my head is like okay, I have a talent for moving images, so moving images can't be objects so i shouldn't even try to make them objects they shouldn't be on a disc they should be open it, it, it was such a, a closed story that it made a lot of sense to just continue that but then just because i stumbled upon the lenticular medium and later on weaving just it it was just available it's like oh do you want to make a test and then it just happened to be very interesting and then mm -hmm. uh, yeah, that, that's basically it. So any any preconceptions I had before that of like uh, idealism or, or or my my story as an artist because it makes a cool story. It's like oh, I never touched an object. I only make uh, zeros and ones. But mm -hmm. then I just happened to stumble upon the material and I thought it was great. So then all the theory is moved aside. But I re I right, remember I when I remember when post internet came along that I really felt a disappointment because I thought, oh, we, we can make art that's available to the entire planet for free. And why would we put our attention to this very closed system? Yeah, that was sort of the thing was like, you know, all of the, you know, we all believed, we all had this ideology, you know, 10 years ago that suddenly overnight is like, oh, people want to buy it in physical form. I'll just print it. it but um, it's, it, it's not even the, buy, the buying thing, I think, came later, but it's also first just the excitement of uh, seeing Being the idea part and walking around it, mm -hmm. and yeah, so I, I, yeah, but it it took a lot longer for me. I really resisted it or even uh, dismissed it because I really thought there's so many downsides to objects. Well, I wonder what that's like for a performer. I'm thinking of myself a little bit, and I, I'm, yeah. I'm thinking like I I've become less and less of a purist with my body. <laughs> Like maybe I'll start smoking. I'm not saying, <laughs> but you know, like, you know, you want. I want to feel things that I haven't felt. You know, I've noticed over yeah, the last try few a little years heroin. that I like. <laughs> but I'm I'm eating. I eat like I, I'm only interested in eating the most obscure things these days, which makes me sound like this horrible like bourgeoisie capitalist. Didn't you just like, Instagram? Didn't you just Instagram ba bagels and locks? That's not very. Well, there were three oh. kinds of salmon, three kinds of lox. <laughs> yeah, I did Instagram. That. Oh, okay. But okay. generally, like my okay. the, my the favorite dish my uh, that I've ever had is like a my wife and I, Kristen, my partner and I talk about it all the time is horse heart crudo, which is like raw horse heart. It's like the best thing we've Ooh. ever eaten. We'll tell people about it. The other day I was talking is about. Is it that good? I love. Ch it's really yeah. It was really really good. But it felt like I could yeah, taste let's talk the about animal. Food. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. Well, yeah. Like we're talking about the senses and I, I, I the extremes ate, and for uh, a performer. I ate I ate grilled pork esophagus in Japan. Mmm. Yeah. <laughs> That's like it's I, very chewy. Esophagus. It, it's very chewy, yeah. and and the more you chew, the more fat comes out, and you can just chew for hours, and it just more fat comes out. It's disgusting. <laughs> so it's like fat chewing gum. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's just the greasy chewing gum. Yeah. But it's, it's there kind are of times old too man, where I'm like old man food yeah. where you you have a, a strong drink and you just chew on this fatty thing. 
Right. It's like a thousand year old egg or a hundred year old cheese or something what, like what that. What we like, should do it, what we should do is is uh, meet up in Korea and eat the living octopus. That's the the challenge. Mm, that's Have the you challenge? seen those YouTubes? No, I, I didn't know that that was a thing. Yeah, you see a person. It's a small octopus, and it wraps around the chopsticks, and it's still alive. I, uh, of course, there's a cruelty factor, so I don't know if we should do it. But <laughs> it is crazy when you see it. Uh, right, it, it, and the horse people put it in their mouth, and it's still moving around their face. It's really, it's kind of like watching when they the, they have to eat Klingon food in Star Trek. <laughs> I should mention also that the horse that I, the heart that I ate, they didn't just kill the horse for the heart. The, the horse was going to be put down anyway. So it was, it was a spare heart they had laying around. I would never uh. propose we kill horses just for their hearts. <laughs> but um, <laughs> anyway, we're sort of we're verging off topic towards uh, the curiosity of well, well, eating yeah, different exotic food. But yeah, but maybe uh, yeah, maybe I mean, in, in, in 10 years we'll get back together and talk about manufactured food and how... It's way better than real food, or is it? And, uh, no. Oh, that's true. They're 3D printing meat, so there's our segue. I mean, the, yeah. for me, of course, it always comes back to, I believe in, you know, we, we're going to tend back towards experiences and, and, um, and living in the present and less material things and, you know, fairer treatment of labor and things like that. That's, the, my, that's my trajectory. But there are, there are a myriad of other paths we might take. Um, and but the one thing I think is true is that like all no matter how many new ways we come up with ways to make physical things, it it doesn't really solve a problem. It just creates, I don't know what what, what the result is. But three D printing did not lead to a revolution in in personalization and customization. For me, it led to like some slightly easier prototyping. Like usually, it's just like a tiny baby step with any of these new things. And it hasn't. It's allowed me to explore some ideas that I couldn't explore before, but. Um, I'm, I don't know, like I'm sitting next to a piece I printed, which is like a, a 3D map of my face moving in space. That, so my face kind of looks like paint or something. Um, and it's printed in porcelain. It's, but you know what? It's like, I don't think anyone else would want this thing. I made it for a show. But for me, I, I don't know. It's, it's a weird way for me to experience my but do you, do you have a, a general? Have you, do you have a general um, affection for sculpture? The like the I guess that yeah for me the, the interesting thing to as I've started to create physical things because you've talked about it has been the tactility like of holding the thing that I was modeling so in this case this was a gesture I created like I moved through space and then now it's printed in in like rock or porcelain in this case and that's really weird that my like physical gesture like moving from point A to point B exists as something that will survive. A millennia because mm. that was a fleeting experience and for me there's an yeah. interesting tension there between the ephemeral and the and the uh i guess what's the opposite of ephemeral the fixed or the the permanent um and that yeah that just that's a curiosity like what does that feel like and you know we're collecting all this data and the internet is this huge accumulation that we don't talk about physically but actually does occupy physical space but we think of it as this ephemeral like cloud and then, like, I think this obsession with, like, making the cloud physical is about trying to understand it, like trying to make sense of the of the reality we live in. And three dimensional things still allow you to do that. Like if you're printing, if you're making a textile that was once a Photoshop file, you're touching the Photoshop. There's a, that I still think it's that tactility. It's being able to walk around yeah. it. It's being able but to it's, break it's it. It's also it's also like a extremely so once you convert a digital file into an object it's this infinite resolution instance of the object and then mm -hmm. it it's refed into the feed again so it's it's just it's almost like you know how in in 3d software you can have a, a wireframe then you can have a sort of simple cartoony image and then you can add all the extreme textures and i think mm -hmm. manufacturing is is the is the ultimate version of that even if it's it then goes to a crate I, I still and, think and even, is yeah, never seen it, in real again. Yeah, or if it gets back on Instagram, but I think the original, the initial act of taking something for me anyway from the digital world and making it physical is is in some ways a search for my own. For it's like a humanity kind of complex. It's a search for meaning with, and we've talked about this before, but like my relationship to the things I create, right? 
and my body exists in physical space, but I've created so many things that don't, um, that I need, I need to feel them. I need to touch them. I need to see them exist. Uh, otherwise, I, I think there's a perversion there, some kind of like, it's a trap in some ways because it's unsatisfying, but there's a strange satisfaction I, I think in it, ultimately. I th- for me, the, the urge to create in Brazil is completely gone. It's absolutely <laughs> gone because I'm physically so comfortable. I just feel so good all the time and everything's so beautiful <laughs> that I have no desire to add anything to it. So I, th- I feel like usually yeah. you make things because uh, there's a discontent, fill a void. A, something missing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah. maybe no, but that's what I, I think. That's what I'm getting at. I think we're just you know we're trying to fill a void, and that mean. I think last podcast you said something really great about meaning that you had read something about it being this futile exercise that human beings are programmed to search for meaning, but that 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 in itself is like kind of what contrives us to do it's all meaningless. Of these silly things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Like what's wrong with meaninglessness and just like pure. Um, I guess being, you know, I th- and we've talked, we are, it's becoming the Zen Buddhist podcast, but like, well, just the, I, I saw know. an in- interview with Jeff Koons and he's, he, when you hear him talk, you think it's all Zen Buddhist, but he, he was very clear that it wasn't. So a lot of times it's also mm. common sense. It's like, okay, right. I can yeah. try it. Yeah. Uh. But I think we're trapped within a system that rewards certain behaviors and the creation of certain things. And so, we're always responding. I think of yeah. everything I do as an interface, right? Like, I, well, there's, it, there's only there's, one way to press the buttons, you know? But there's the artist, uh, Tina Segal, who does performances and then uh, sells them as performances, and there's no document. It's an, an auditory contract with a notary. And mm-hmm. the money, the only physical component, actually, is that the money is paid in cash because he doesn't want he doesn't want there to be any record of the financial transaction which just sounds like a really smart uh, tax evasion but oh i didn't know that yeah, yeah but, uh, i mean uh, he, he's very he's very idealistic so he doesn't travel by airplane only by train and uh, doesn't eat meat he doesn't drink and all that stuff the problem for me is that the actual work is just not that interesting so everything he, he checked all the boxes on how to make the world a better place because his performances, the, the, the performers are paid a fair wage and he's employing people because of that and people get together. It's about being together in a moment. It, everything's correct, like everything you're supposed to do to be a good human being. It just doesn't make for very interesting art. So I think the, this but have idea you experienced of... A, yeah, have you experienced a few times. A Tina Segal in person? But people usually yeah, react to Tina Segal's work quite viscerally, like you know, because it can be very confrontational. Yeah, in the same way it can be confrontational when someone is extremely drunk in an environment where nobody's drunk. It's, <laughs> right, it's not that interesting. Right. Yeah. yeah. yeah I so, guess right. so to me, to me um, I, this idea of an artist checking all the boxes on being morally correct, it's like, okay, my art involves people from all over the world and treats them in the same way. And, it's a dangerous path because you you might end up checking all the boxes, but the work itself is is neglected. Well, at the end of the day, I think you've always talked about this. And I, maybe this is a good way to uh, close the podcast: is if if you as the artist or the creator don't get some satisfaction or don't enjoy, like if there's no joy in the act of the create of creating the thing, then it serves very little purpose. Um, and if it doesn't create joy for others, then it lack. You know, for me, this is crucial and I know we've disagreed or agreed on this in various capacities if I don't create joy in someone else then it then it doesn't really serve a purpose um but that's why we do this podcast yeah that's right to create joy no I I, I I heard it no but I heard a lot of positive feedback from people like uh well there's a whole category of podcast there's a whole category of podcast just built around inspiring and creating joy but like I I mean honestly that's why I, I started making art it was because i could make people laugh that way (laughs) and even Mm -hmm. if it's like easier to make people who look at art laugh because they're surrounded by such misery all the time uh, (laughs) or people who like (laughs) i still get to i still get to create joy and that's really satisfying for me um i'm not louis ck but it's it's the thing that i can that i get out of it um 
Yeah, and, and when, I think I've seen you. When is your next performance really... in New York? Well, that's a good question. At the top of my head, I don't. Well, have we should one organize something because <laughs> I haven't seen I you love, perform uh, since uh, Seven on Seven. Oh my God, that was years ago. Yeah, that's the only well, time I've seen you. Yeah. That was a good one, though. Maybe we could do a live recording of the podcast in New York um, with uh, yeah. performances and textiles by <laughs> Raphael and Jeremy. Yeah. Um, something like that'd that. That'd be that'd be great. Something like that. Anyway, yeah, let's uh, look. Let's try and organize something for the new year as a resolution. We haven't. We okay. we, did, we talked about the the next year, but, uh, last podcast, but we didn't really set our own resolution. Um, well, my resolution is resolution. to to uh, not look at the news. Right, and and my resolution is to uh, join you in New York and for us to be together and create some joy um, alongside okay. some of the the wonderful people that are listening. Um, yeah. Okay. Sounds great. Cool. Okay. See you next week. Yeah. Thank you, everyone who listened, who managed <laughs> to make it this far as we rambled through artist fabrication and and who knows what else we we touched on. But hopefully, it was interesting and you enjoyed it. And thanks so much for listening. Bye bye. Happy New Year. Bye. Happy New Year. <laughs> <laughs>